Hello, all of you friendly people. Hello, all of you friendly people out there. It's Friday, December the 27th, 2019, almost 11 p.m. in the Pacific Standard Time Zone. Here in Seattle, in Little Saigon, the merrymakers of the Gumpus Zones are getting drunk as fuck. They're getting ready to go out on the streets and see if they can't find something special. Maybe they will find something special somewhere in an alleyway next to somebody they used to love. I don't know, folks, maybe. But yeah, I was uh, out shopping this morning. And I was at the bus stop, the one near Broadway and I want to say Union. Broadway and Union, not far from the QFC, that's the Quality Food Center. Yeah, I was done getting bacon and eggs in accordance with the Psychological Edicts of Edward Bernays, Sigmund Freud's nephew, right? I was buying bacon and eggs. I bought some butter, too. Then I went to the beer aisle. I got myself some PBR. I got myself some Pabst Blue Ribbon. You ever wonder why they won the blue ribbon? You're not supposed to ask. I went to the self checkout and packed up my fucking groceries, paid for them, made my way to the bus stop to pick up my fucking bus, which in fact was. A streetcar, not the bus. And an old dude was standing there, and, and I swear to you, this is actually true. An old dude was standing there at the bus stop, bemoaning the vehicles that pretended to look like wagons, but were in fact trucks. He was upset that some truck was trying to look like a country-style wagon. He was very upset about this. I don't understand why. He was upset that a truck was trying to look like an old-style Conestoga wagon. I really didn't understand why this boomer was so upset. I said, okay, boomer. I said, 
Okay, Boomer, hold my beer. Don't you realize that everything is Potemkin now? Prosperity is Potemkin prosperity. The house you live in is a Potemkin house, and yes, your village is definitely a Potemkin village. Your car is a Potemkin car, your job is a Potemkin job, your wife is a Potemkin woman. Everything is bullshit, Boomer. Did I ruin your day, sir? Did I ruin your wonderful special day? Okay, give me back my beer. And then the streetcar rolled up. They laid down the special track for the people that weigh 7,000 pounds. I don't weigh that much yet. Someone else had to roll onto the streetcar using the little ramp for extra large folks, which we're not supposed to say, right? I'm kind of fat, too. But I'm not ramp fat yet. If you're ramp fat, you have a vehicle. You have to ride the vehicle. You can't actually... Yeah. I can still go up five flights of stairs, buddy. Here's the thing, people, my dear friends out there in the world of fantastic impossibilities. I think we beat up on generations too much. I think boomers and X-Gen and other people beat up on the young people. And let's just throw away these, these, these names. You know, these names, X-Gen, Boomer, Greatest Generation, yeah, yeah, like my dad, some of them got experimented on with radiation. Yeah, all of these are slave names. Boomer is a slave name. X Generation is a slave name. And so is Z and Millennial and all the other stupid-ass, fucktard, demographic classification, divide-and-conquer, identity-driven, intergenerational warfare fucking bullshit. It's not about being old. It's not about being young. I see people every day that are old, and it looks like their lives are way worse than mine, and my life shocks the good, happy people of Normietown in Seattle. So you can imagine how bad that is. And we can have all sorts of opinions about it. We can say, oh, well, they made bad choices. They should have invested right. They should have bought into that home pyramid thing. We told them that, yeah, yeah, there'll be externalities. Externality 
is a fancy name for the consequences of bullshit you do. For example, if you build an economy around housing pyramid schemes, you're probably gonna have homeless people, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that I told you that, you fuck. These generational names, these labels, and they are slave names, folks. They are ways of controlling us. They're total fucking bullshit. Young people are not stupid because they're young. Old people are not necessarily wise because they're old. But the fact is, if you live long enough, and you're not a total piece of shit, there's a fairly good likelihood that you've learned something. So if you're a young person and somebody that's not a total piece of shit, an old person, tells you something, it might make sense to listen because they might be trying to help you avoid a fucking mistake. Yeah, just because someone's old doesn't mean they're wise or stupid. Just because someone's young doesn't make them smart or stupid. Being young or old is a property of something. It is a measure of time, duration, vis-a-vis -vis that system, that body, that object. How long has it existed? I guess this is a long-winded way of saying, I'm going to scuzzle some water first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a fucking long-winded way of saying that this hating people because they're boomers is kind of stupid. Now, is it true that a lot of old people have made really dumb decisions that have harmed others? And what's worse, some of them seem to be oblivious to the fucking ramifications. Let me give you an example. Hillary fucking Clinton. She is hugely proud of toppling Colonel Gaddafi. In fact, she brags about that shit. She bragged about it back in 2012. She bragged about, we came, we saw, we killed him. Wow. Yeah, that's the kind of language you want out of a president. And what you have today is civil war and murder and rape gangs and slavery um, on a huge scale and starvation and murder and hatred and every fucking thing else. And she's hugely proud of this fucking social disaster that she helped to create. And then there's Syria. She's hugely pr proud of that bullshit too. So is Obama. Hugely fucking proud of the lying and the false flags and the bullshit white helmets. Hugely fucking proud of the 
really the social fucking catastrophe. So there are old people who do stupid things and harm people and are oblivious to it. Guess what? There are young people who do stupid things and harm lots of people and they are also oblivious to it. I can't help you with that. I mean, I think Jesus would say, guess what? They will, you know, reap what they sow. They will get their reward in the afterlife. I am certain of this. You see, folks, I don't know if I'm getting to heaven, but there are people I know I would meet in hell. I think I would meet Joseph Stalin in hell. No, I don't know. I, I, I would. Hitler, of course. Pol Pot, Mao, and duh. Ted Bundy, definitely. And yes, Hillary Clinton and Trump and Obama and Bush. In fact, if you've been elected president since I was born, chances are you did something shitty, and that includes Carter too, you fuck. Yeah, I'm sorry, folks, but hell's going to be filled with a lot of people that I don't like. So even though I would love to go to heaven and spend eternity with Jesus, I think I'd almost be willing to suffer eternal torment just to be able to check my fucking list. Yep, but does that imply that old people are bad? No. But there are bad people. There are really terribly shitty people. And life has consequences. And if one of the consequences is that some of the shitty people are going to get torn to pieces, well, this scares them. This scares the fuck out of them. So what are these shitty old people doing? Well, they're basically doing what any intelligent creature will do to take advantage of crowd behavior. They are setting themselves up, not as George Soros or Hillary Clinton or Bill fucking Gates. They're setting themselves up as boomers, and that way they're part of a group. And that makes it harder for the predators to target them specifically. Yeah, I, that's why I think this whole generational warfare bullshit is being set up. It's another type of smoke and mirrors maneuver. It's another way to avoid um, what I would call the inherent justice of causality. And one way to avoid it is to confuse people. And certainly if you can say, no, I'm not George Soros. I'm some kind of fucking boomer or something. Okay, maybe. Maybe you're a boomer, right? Good old Georgie boy. Georgie boy. Yeah, I did hear this guy say this, and I said, you know, everything is Potemkin. That's actually what happened. 
I heard him say this and I said, you know, dude, everything is a Potemkin this and a Potemkin that. And he smiled and laughed as so many people will do, irrespective of their age and say, oh yeah, okay, he didn't know what I meant. And that's okay, folks. In part, I'm kind of happy that people don't know what I mean. Now, here's the thing. A Potemkin village refers to a guy by the name of Potemkin who lived under Catherine the Great of Russia. And it refers to the fact that Catherine the Great was kind of embarrassed by Russia. And so she would build, th she would build these make-believe places that she would take dignitaries to and diplomats, make-believe Russian villages, and they came to be called Potemkin villages. Now that's more or less it. I may have gotten the history a little wrong because I'm rusty. I haven't really been into history folks in a long time, really. In part because I'm convinced in graduate school I was mostly lied to. So many of the books I read were published by Brookings Institution or Harvard or Yale or, yeah, the fucking Rand Corporation. So I'm fairly convinced that maybe almost everything I was told by professors and intellectuals Maybe most of it was bullshit, maybe half of it, maybe there's no way to know how much was bullshit and how much was true. Here's the deal. Next topic. If you're going to make a cannabis-infused butter on Christmas Day, here are some rules. Whether it's your sister or your friend and they've never done this before at their place, make sure you tell them it's going to smell really nasty. If you don't use a hot plate, you should never use a hot plate. But if you do, Make sure you use one that has three prongs. My sister's had two prongs. And I completed the circuit twice that day, twice on Christmas Day. My heart still has a mild dithrhythmic comblambulation. That's what Dr. Grunkus calls it. I will tell you this too, if you're going to use a hot plate, don't plug it into the same fucking plug that has 50 fucking strings of lights and a giant inflatable fucking snowman with that electric motor probably, <laughs> what, one or two watts, who knows. Because even though most houses these days have that little protective circuit breaker thingy, yeah, if you got a lot of current flow, that circuit breaker doesn't quite hit in time and you get a nice little extra pumpy jerky to the heart. 
So we've gone over a few things in this list. But above all else, don't use a hot plate that doesn't have three prongs. That other prong is called ground. <laughs> and folks, I gotta tell you, completing a circuit as you're making can of butter, you know, you're, you're just your head, you're basically leaning over boiling oil out in the fucking outside because, yeah. Normie paradise here in Washington state. Supposedly, weed is legal. But people get freaked out. They just want to have their whiskey. And that's okay. Yeah, I got shocked a couple times. I know I brought this up in a previous podcast or two. But I got a couple good jolts. And back in the day, before they had those rules about, you know, and, and for those of you in the housing business, I know I beat up on real estate and stuff. If you're a contractor, please keep things in perspective. We all have our own opinions about these rackets. Just don't take it too fucking personal. If you want to say it's your line of work, guess what? There's no fucking job I can do at this point in American history that won't make me feel dirty. Not one. You could say, you can deliver pizza. Yeah, to who? The motherfuckers who are running the logistics of the Death Star? Okay, maybe I won't do that. Maybe fuck you. So even though I beat up on the housing pyramid scheme bullshit, it's mainly because of the cognitive dissonance and the delusion and the inability to see that that kind of economy has consequences. Like homelessness. But anyways, back in the day, you didn't have to have these little fucking, you know, safety circuit breaker thingies. You could actually have a hardwired fucking home. Your home could have continuous juice. So let's say Uncle Dan was making good old-timey cannabis butter, but in 1946, and yeah, he wasn't using some safe hot plate. <laughs> he was using old, old Dr. Edison's, old Dr. Edison's old timey, super hot, super fast plate. And in addition, still using a metal pot and a metal spoon and no no rubber safety gloves. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> no way. That's what that's what you know pussies do. Anywho, imagine back in the day, it'd be like, you know, I would get it and instead of just immediately a jolt and be like, huh? It'd be like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> You know, you know what I mean, guys? Like, you know, you're holding on to the fucking electrical wire. And it's so bad that it hurts real bad. It hurts real bad. It's sealing up your a-hole. But it's also forcing your hands to constrict. So you can't let go. 
That's why they added that circuit breaker thingy, folks. <laughs> because it's the part about not being able to let go that dooms you. And that's bad. That's bad, folks. That's bad. Okay, so here's the deal, folks. I'm going to read some of a paper. Um, I talked about deep adaptation in a previous podcast. So I'm going to read some of a paper written by Jem Bendel. This is that famous paper that Vice Magazine says if you read it, you're going to get really sad, really depressed. And maybe my podcast is like that. And if it's like that to you and you're depressed, can I tell you something? Turn it the fuck off. Turn it off. This isn't some test. Um, sometimes it's good to not hear certain things. Sometimes it's good to turn things off. If, if something makes you stressed out or sad, it's okay to disengage. And if I've never actually said that, and if podcasters and people don't say that, because frankly, sometimes they're, they have their own fucking agendas, right? What I'm telling you is it's okay to disengage. You should. Um, I have no fear discussing a lot of horrible subjects. And, and guess what, folks? That just means that, yeah, I'm kind of a dark person. I always have been. I have never had a fear of going over these issues. When I was 13, I think, 13 or 14, and I saw that movie the day after, you know the one where at the end Jason Robards is sitting in a fucking crater, his hair's all gone, and another fucking freakazoid from the post-nuke zone comes up and maybe they share some beans and give each other a hug? Yeah, when I saw that scene, the end of A Day After, with Jason Robards there and the other radioactive muckazoid, I thought to myself, you know... It's as likely that I I have some comfortable grandpappy fucking Campbell's soup fucking, you know, Folgers coffee fucking retirement. It, it is as likely that that happens as I end up like Jason Robards, all mutated with skin falling off in a crater when I'm his age. So I have this this darkness, folks, is not new. And I also can't say that it's anything other than a defect. Is it possible, is it at all possible that my personal defect, my darkness, synchronizes with the world? Well, it's possible, but I don't know how you'd prove that. And if you did find that out, wouldn't that make things even more fucking depressing? Because nobody wants to know about something that they can't really fix. And that makes sense, people. The things we talk about on this fucking podcast, a lot of them don't really have solutions. It's more of what do you do if it happens? How do you respond? But it's not like you can say, oh shit, how do we undo all the nasty, stupid fucking shit that human beings have been doing since the beginning of time? Well, you can't really do that. And I don't care if it's environmental damage or just cultural damage. I don't care if it's the destruction of Mayan history, the burning of ancient texts, and then taking the rest back to the Vatican with the fucking Jesuits to do God knows what. The fact is, 
Human beings have done monstrous things to each other's lives, bodies, existence, culture for thousands of years. We've been nine at each other, nine on ourselves, exhibiting frustration, behavior, probably because we're very fucking delusional for the most part. So if you are currently kind of depressed, you don't want to listen to this paper, and if you're kind of depressed and you need to take a break, um, you don't have to listen to this fucking podcast. This isn't a fucking test, like I said. I'm just a crazy old burned-out computer programmer in Little Saigon, Seattle. That's what I am. Am I proud or ashamed? No. There's nothing to be proud of, and I don't think there's anything particular to be ashamed of. I'm sorry, but that's how I feel. But... Neither pride nor shame, people. Kind of like my sister's French bulldog. I don't think Beans has any sense of pride. But I do think, and I also don't think he has a sense of shame. So you can live like Beans. Don't go around thinking you're special, because you're probably like him and not. But don't be ashamed of your bullshit as you try to have sex with a throw rug. Don't be ashamed. Don't be too proud. Just accept and be grateful to the extent you can. You know, and none of us is that good at that shit, people. I'm not. I suck. I suck. I give myself very good advice, but I seldom ever follow it. So here we go. You're going to want to disconnect, disconnect now, because we're going to read from this. And again, this deals with the subject of deep adaptation. And if you're not aware of this subject, go ahead and research it. It has to do with the field of study of how you respond to catastrophic um, global ecological collapse, which, yes, includes climate change, but it includes everything. Climate change is part of it. Title, <clears throat> Deep Adaptation, colon, A Map for Navigating Climate Tragedy. This was, su this was submitted to the IFLAS, um, that's India Foxtrot Lima Alpha Sierra, Occasional Paper 2, and there is a website, iflas.info. And the date is July the 27th, 2018, presented by Professor Jem, and I hope I'm saying this correct, Jem Bendel, Jem Bendel, BA Honors, PhD. There's a little bit of a blurb about what occasional papers are. I'm not going to really look at that. I'm not going to read that. I'm going to go directly to the abstract. The abstract. The purpose of this conceptual paper is to provide readers with an opportunity to reassess their work and life in the face of an inevitable near-term social collapse due to climate change. The approach of the paper is to analyze recent studies on climate change and its implications for ecosystems, economies, and societies, as provided by academic journals and publications direct from research institutes. That synthesis leads to a conclusion there will be a near-term collapse in society with serious ramifications for the lives of, the, of readers. 
The paper reviews some of the reasons why collapse denial may exist, in particular in the professions of sustainability research and practice, therefore leading to these arguments having been absent from these fields until now. The paper offers a new meta-framing of the implications for research, organizational practice, personal development, and public policy called the Deep Adaptation Agenda. Its key aspects of resilience, relinquishment, and restorations are explained. This agenda does not seek to build on existing scholarship on climate adaptation as it is premised on the view that social collapse is now inevitable. The author believes this is one of the first papers in the sustainability management field to conclude that climate-induced societal collapse is now inevitable in the near term and therefore to invite scholars to explore the implications. So this is where I'm stopping. That was the abstract. I am going to read the introduction and we continue. Can professionals in sustainability management, policy, and research, myself included, continue to work with the assumption or hope that we can slow down climate change or respond to it sufficiently to sustain our civilization? As disturbing information on climate change passed across my screen, this was the question I could no longer ignore and therefore decided to take a couple of months to analyze the latest climate science. As I began to conclude that we can no longer work with that assumption or hope, I asked, a question, I asked a second question. Have professionals in the sustainability field discussed the possibility that it is too late to avert an environmental catastrophe and the implications for their work? A quick literature review revealed that my fellow professionals have not been publishing work that explores or starts from that perspective. That led to a third question on why sustainability professionals are not exploring this fundamentally important issue to our whole field as well as our personal lives. To explore that, I drew on psychological analysis, conversations with colleagues, reviews of debates amongst environmentalists in the social media, and self-reflection on my own reticence. Concluding there is a need to promote discussion about the implications of a social collapse triggered by an environmental catastrophe I asked my fourth question on what are the ways that people are talking about collapse on social media. I, I identified a variety of conceptualizations and from, what, and from that asked myself what could provide a map for people to navigate this extremely difficult issue. For that I drew on a range of reading and experiences over my 25 years in the sustainability field to outline an agenda for what I have termed deep adaptation to climate change. The result of these five questions is an article that does not contribute to one specific set of literature or practice in the broad field of sustainability management and policy. Rather, rather it questions the basis for all the work in this field. It does not seek to add to the existing research policy and practice on climate adaptation as I found that to be framed by the view that we can manage the impacts of a changing climate on our physical, economic, social, political, and psychological situations. 
Instead, this article may contribute to future work on sustainable management and policy as much by subtraction as by addition. By that, I mean the implication is for you to take a time to step back to consider what if the analysis in these pages is true, to allow yourself to grieve and to overcome enough of the typical fears we all have, to find meaning in new ways of being and acting. That may be in the fields of academia or management, or could be in some other field that this realization leads you to. Now folks, I'm going to stop here and I'm going to skip to another section because I'm going to leave you to read this yourself. Okay, so I'm going to the section titled Looking Ahead, and it's on page 8 of 36 of the PDF. Again, um, and I'm also going to include a link to this, obviously, in the description of the podcast. Looking ahead, the impacts I just summarized are already upon us, and even without increasing their severity, they will nevertheless increase their impacts on our, on our ecosystems, soils, seas, and our societies over time. It is difficult to predict future impacts, but it is more difficult not to predict them because the, because the reported impacts today are at the very worst end of predictions being made in the early 1990s, back when I first studied climate change and model-based climate predictions as an undergraduate at Cambridge University. The models today suggest an increase in storm number and strength, Herring et al. 2018, they predict a decline of normal agriculture, including the compromising of mass production of grains in the Northern Hemisphere and intermittent disruption to rice production in the tropics. That includes predicted declines in the yields of rice, wheat, and corn in China by 36.25%, 18.26%, and 45.1% respectively by the end of this century. Zhang et al. 2016. Naresh et al. 2014 project, projects a 6 to 23 and 15 to 25% reduction in the wheat yield in India during the 2050s and 2080s respectively under the mainstream projected climate change scenarios. The loss of coral and the acidification of the seas is predicted to reduce fisheries productivity by over half. Rogers et al. 2017. The rates of sea level rise suggest they may be soon they may soon become exponential momquist 2018 which will pose significant problems for billions of people living in coastal areas newman et al 2015 environmental scientists are now describing our current era as the sixth mass extinction event in the history of planet earth with this one caused by us about half of all plants and animal species in the world's most biodiverse places are at risk of extinction due to due to climate change. World that's from the World Wildlife Fund, I believe, 2018. The World Bank reported in 2018 that countries needed to prepare for over 100 million internally displaced people due to the effects of climate change, Riga et al. 2018, in addition to millions of international refugees. Despite you me and most people we know in this field 
already hearing data on this global situation is useful to recap simply to invite a sober acceptance of our current predicament. It has led some commentators to describe our time as a new geological era shaped by human beings, by humans, the, anthropo the Anthropocene. It has led others to conclude that we should be exploring how to live in an unstable post-sustainability situation. This context is worth being reminded of as it provides the basis upon which to assess the significance or otherwise of all the praiseworthy efforts that have been underway and reported in some detail in this and other journals over the past decade. I will now offer an attempt at a summary of that broader context insofar as it might frame our future work on sustainability. The politically permissible scientific consensus is that we need to stay beneath two degrees of warming of global ambient temperatures to avoid dangerous and uncontrollable levels of climate change, which with impacts such as mass starvation, disease, flooding, storm destruction, forced migration, and war. That figure was agreed by governments that were dealing with many domestic and international pressures from vested interests, particularly corporations. It is therefore not a figure that many scientists would advise, given that many ecosystems will be lost and many risks created if we approach two degrees global ambient temperature. The IPCC um, agreed in 2013 that if the world does not keep further anthropogenic emissions below a total of 800 billion tons of carbon, we are not li likely to keep the average temperatures below two degrees global average warming. Okay, I'm going to stop here, folks. I only read parts of this paper. Um, as you can see, it's kind of a dry read in some ways. The thing that's shocking about the paper, and I think this is why folks like Guy McPherson and Dane Wigington have mentioned it, the thing that's shocking about the paper is that it broaches a subject that is, well, difficult for people to deal with. That we could live in a world where food, food, something we take for granted. I am about 50 to 60 pounds overweight. Now, would I love to lose that weight and become 50 pounds lighter? Maybe. But my current operating theory is I shouldn't gain more weight and I probably shouldn't stress out about losing much either. And the reason is, is because I think there's going to come a time, a lot like last winter for me, when the weight I have is going to buy me maybe a week or two, maybe a month. And you might say, well, Dan, that's an awfully dark way of looking at the future. <sighs> yeah, it is. but it's how I see the future right now. So if you say to me, you know, if you were to like say, Dan, um, why aren't you dating? Why aren't you on a dating website? Why aren't you involved in singles groups? Why aren't you going kayaking with the, with the various groups and organizations that wanna make sure that the garbage gets picked up at Lake Union? Although it's interesting, these same organizations don't care about garbage in other places, but that's just random.
there's a reason why I'm not dating. There's a reason why probably I was dumped. There's a reason why um, I can't really have good conversations with young people like my nieces and nephews about the world because I don't want them to get depressed. I don't want them to fucking give up. And guess what? If you listen to my fucking podcast and just don't jump to fucking conclusions, I'm not advising anybody to fucking give up. I'm simply trying to be honest about, you know, some interesting challenges that we might face that if we don't at least think about them, we'll probably knock our teeth out when they arrive. Because we've made really stupid assumptions. We've assumed that all of this magical bullshit can go on forever. We were told this in movies. We are told this on TV. We have magazines like Wired Magazine that are dedicated to telling you that the technological flim-flam, the razzmatazz, all the fucking spectacular debt and loans, all the fucking bullshit, all the post-scarcity robot up your butt, take a pill, live forever, nanites are going to clean out your glimbus bullshit. All of it. Bullshit. I'm not saying technology isn't amazing. It is. I'm Right now, I'm using a Zoom H4N Pro to record my voice. I'm using a Roland Go Keys to play these stupid sounds. I'm using a computer every day. I'm a computer programmer. How could I fucking hate technology? I don't. I hate the fact that we have lost control of it. Or at least that's the current excuse. But I don't think we've lost control. I don't think people like us were ever in control. Ever. At least if you were born post-World War II, the likelihood that you ever had any real power over your life beyond that narrow little fucking corridor, that narrow normie fucking Go down this fucking path. Go down this fucking path. Follow this line. Go down this chute. Climb this ladder. Jump through this hoop. Push the button. Ignore the... Ignore. Please, please, by all means... Please, ignore the pillars of smoke in the distance. Please ignore the fact that the stuff you have might have been stolen from somebody else. Please ignore the fact that the money we print so you can have your little housing pyramid scheme, <clears throat> yeah, that money is doing damage to other people. It's destroying other people so you can have your pyramid scheme. Please ignore um, the pillars of smoke in the distance. That's kind of the point, folks. The reason why a paper like this, which again, I don't know if all this data is true. I don't. There's been so much lying. There's been so much hyperbole. There, there's been so much exaggeration when it comes to climate change and weather that I just truly don't know who's telling the fucking truth. I'm sorry. And if you're going to say, well, Dan, I'm from the Cato Institute, shut the fuck up. 
You fuckers say all kinds of stupid shit all the fucking time. So please don't tell me I should listen to you just because you claim to represent fucking libertarians and free enterprise. Bullshit. When it comes to the people you care about, you love to see laws get passed. You love your fucking lawyers. Fuck you and your fucking hypocrisy. Cato Institute. So no, I, I don't know if everything in the paper is true. I don't even know if this guy, Jem Bendel, is real. He might be manufactured. Folks, if you get really paranoid, if you get really paranoid, you can ask that question. To what extent is everything in my reality synthetic? Maybe everything is. Maybe everything in my reality is now synthetic as fuck. A created, constructed, manufactured thing. It's like, what if I don't really have friends, but I have things that were created? What if my friends aren't real? Or my family? What if none of it is real? That is the Cartesian question from Meditations. What if there is a demon that is creating my reality? But let's just for the moment assume that that's not the case, that there is no demiurge constructing and weaving my reality per some Gnostic control mechanism. That doesn't mean the government doesn't fuck with us. They do. And they try to lay their reality right on top of us. They want, they want you to understand the world that they give you. They want you to navigate the maze, the puzzle box, the constructed reality, the way they want you to behave. And if you don't, you'll get a shock. And if you misbehave, you'll get two shocks. And you don't want to get number three. So I don't know if this paper is true.
I don't know how to tell you how to figure out what is real. What I can tell you from my experience is that when I look up at the sky, I don't see a gray sky that reminds me of my youth. I see a nasty, silvery fucking gumba sky. It does not look normal. It does not look like it was created through anything other than the act of a human being. Now, does that imply I'm right? No. I could be in a deformed metal state. This is referred to as anecdotal information. I haven't seen a lot of insects this year. I haven't seen a lot of fucking earthworms. You know, when it would rain here as a kid and other places I've been, you would see tons of earthworms coming up. I didn't see, when it did rain, I didn't see a lot of that this year. Now, there's also the other information which I can't verify. Do I know for a fact the orca whales are in trouble in the Puget Sound? No. I do know anecdotally from friends who basically like to fish for salmon that the salmon runs pretty much suck. Now, is that a scientific description of reality? No, it is not. But in this puzzle box reality, we're getting information the best way we can. We are navigating the chutes and the ladders as best we can. We're trying to figure out what the truth is as best we can. And do I think it's likely that what's being hidden from us, what's being lied to about, is something really, really great? Do I think it's likely that what's being hidden is some type of fucking um, disclosure of an alien race that wants to help us and clean up the water and the air and give us clean soil and clean food. I don't think that's very likely. I don't think they're hiding Santa Claus. I don't think they're hiding a magical fairy. I think what they're hiding is a horrible truth. And the horrible truth might be the following, that we collectively, we human beings, have royally fucked ourselves. And that even if there is another side to the story, it's going to be after a period of time that is going to be really fucking terrible. Ultimately, every single tax, in a way, gets paid. And when I say tax, I don't mean government taxes. I mean the entropy tax. I mean the fact that you have to pay for the shit you do. There are consequences, and you have to pay for them. And you may think you can run from your consequences, but take it from me, one drifter to another. You can't run that far. Nobody can run that fast. Nobody is that fleet of foot to run from their consequences. Not even Lucifer.
Temple Grandin, and I've mentioned Temple Grandin before. There's a documentary, I believe HBO did, could have been Showtime, but I think it was HBO. And they did a, a, a documentary, well, technically a movie, not a documentary, a docudrama about Temple Grandin. She suffered from autism. She suffered from severe autism. A lot like my, my nephew, who's pretty freaking cool. He calls me a lot these days because he has a smart device. Oh, my nephew. I wish you understood that that device is ironically named, but he calls me, he texts me, he asks me how I'm doing. I say I'm doing fine. I'm sure he suspects I'm lying. But then again, aren't autistic people supposed to be confused about lying? I don't know, folks, but this is what I'll tell you. Temple Grandin was a person that suffered from autism, and she also revolutionized the way that slaughterhouses and transfer facilities for cattle are designed. For decades, cattle would be transferred the way that people go around. Lots of straight fucking lines, lots of fucking four-way stops, lots of fucking gates that shouldn't even be there. Lots of stress. And the thing that Temple Grandin noticed is that if you reduce the stress of the cattle, you'll get fewer injuries, the, probably even the meat will taste better. Although I don't know if they tested that. So how do you reduce the stress of the cattle, Temple Grandin? Well, the cattle, their eyes are essentially on the side of their heads. So you give them curves, you don't give them straight lines. If you want them to go someplace, have them curve around. No sharp corners, no sharp edges, that stresses the fuck out of cattle. That's how you design things, folks. I mention this again, because I've mentioned it before. When I look at America and the modern world, I see a kind of temple grand in reality. The chutes and the ladders and the buttons and the switches, these things are not accidental. You have that smart device out there. You've got that little phone you stare at. You're not looking at the sky. You're not really looking at the ground. You're not really looking at the fucking social disaster and decay that surrounds you. Just like the fucking cow. You're not being given any fucking straight lines. No fucking corners, no fucking crevices. Just nice, smooth, air, air fucking streamlined fucking curves. And you don't have to think about shit or focus on shit. Imagine how shocking it's going to be for the cattle when those little devices stop working and it becomes obvious that all the curves are really straight lines and all the buttons are really shock devices and all the food is mostly poison and all the truth is mostly lies. Imagine how shocked they're going to be. See, like I said, 
if if this show stresses you out, I get it. And and I, and my best advice is, if you hear something that stresses you out, figure out a way to stop listening to it because you're not obligated. The other side of free will is you have a right not to listen. I mean, excuse me, free speech. <laughs> the other side of free speech, wow. That coconut can of butter. Is it helping or hurting, folks? We don't really know. We don't know. It might be helping, it might be hurting. It might be turning me into a monstrosity. It might be transforming space-time into the infinite plasmococcus filled with the ancient oils and greases of the dead ones. Yeah. Anyway, folks, here's the deal. If you like my podcast, if you have money, if you paid for the things you need to pay for, You've taken care of your friends, your family, your pet rat. Guess what? It might be good food in the, in the end. You've taken care of your rat, your cat, your French bulldog. And you still have extra cash left over. And you really want to help out a middle-aged, burned-out computer programmer in Little Saigon, Seattle, who's a little bit like, Ar like Archie Bunker. Do you really want to do that? Do you want to help out an old crazy dude in Little Saigon? Yeah, I don't have to tell you, but if you like my show and you have money, there is no minimum, there is no maximum. If I have plenty, I'll probably tell people because I don't need to become a billionaire at this point. If you believe what I believe, I mostly need to figure out how to live for the next two years 
on roughly, you know, a couple grand a month. And, and then I had to figure out how to come up with that two grand. And because I hate working as a software engineer now in the Seattle area because it's filled with poison that destroys my soul. Well, I'm going to bind, but I'll figure it out. I'll wash dishes, people. You can make two grand a month now washing dishes. Then again, you'll say, but Dan, isn't that a lot to wash dishes? If you saw how I lived, you might rationally say, isn't that a lot for how you live? And I would say C1A. If you think there are no consequences to housing bubbles, there are. But like I said, I don't care how you make your money, you might have to murder tiny little animals. You might have to fish the last protein from the sea. You might have to work at the hospital and decide which person's heart or lung will be torn out to be given to somebody else. You might be a person who walks the streets in search of love. You might be a man that is a desperado. You might be a cowboy king. You might be a terrible, wild-ass, barbarian motherfucker covered in gold and diamonds and bling. If you got that extra cash and you want to help me out, you can do it, buddy. You can do it, buddy. You can do it, pal. There'll be a link to Venmo in the description of this podcast to donate. There's a link to Venmo on my SoundCloud homepage in the right panel where all those other links are. No min, no max. Not required. If all you can do is recommend me to your friends and those creatures that live in the night. That's all you can do. Well, that's a lot for a drifter hobo in Little Saigon. And for the rest of this Friday night, stay out of trouble in the streets, people. Watch out for the gumptus freaks. And beware any strange, strange figurine of the other alabaster region of your dark desires chiseling away at your fucking curves and turning them into straight lines, turning your lights and doors, your windows into pits, turning your feet into metal spikes, and turning your life into shit.